welcome to the 2018 6th Annual Kessler Neurotrauma Conference, sponsored by Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. This conference presents an in-depth look at the art of delivering individualized rehabilitation services to this diverse patient population. Physicians, clinicians, and research scientists will provide insight into a range of topics, from mobility and fatigue to intimacy and sexuality to employment and empowerment, and will offer innovative evidence-based strategies to effectively support both the patient and the caregiver. This podcast was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Friday, December 7, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. In this, pod- in this lecture podcast, doctors Dyson Hudson and John O'Neill of Kessler Foundation and Adria DeSimone, MSCRLA of Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, presents Resource Facilitation, Early Inpatient and Assertive Outpatient Vocational Rehabilitation Services for Individuals with SCI. Dr. Trevor Dyson Hudson is Director of Spinal Cord Injury Research and Outcomes and Assessment Research at Kessler Foundation. Dr. O'Neill is Director of Disability and Employment Research at Kessler Foundation, and Ms. Simone is Resource Facilitator, SCI Program at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Let's listen in. We have also John O'Neill. So Dr. O'Neill is the Director of Disability and Employment Research at the Kessler Foundation. And we also have Adria DeSimone. She's a Vocational Rehabilitation Counselor at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. And their talk is on resource facilitation, early inpatient and assertive outpatient vocational rehabilitation services for individuals with spinal cord injury. It's been a long day, right? Well. Good news is we're the last last presentation before uh, we're the last presentation of probably what's been a very long day for you all. Uh, bad news for us is we're between you and the weekend, so I'll just wait for Lou to get things fired up. Trevor Dyson Hudson and together with uh, John O'Neill and Adria De Simone, I'm going to tell you about a program we launched here at Kessler a few years ago on uh, vocational resource facilitation. And really what it is, is it's an early inpatient program that's followed with this assertive outpatient program in in vocational rehabilitation. And we implemented this in people with spinal cord injury. This program was possible because of a generous grant from the Nielsen Foundation. So the Craig H. Nielsen Foundation, (laughs) which funds a lot of our spinal cord injury programs here at Kessler. So disclosures, uh, we have no, or these are our disclosures, which are we have none, uh, no financial or non-financial. What we're hoping you get out of this talk today is that you'll be able to describe research findings related to early employment interventions in medical rehabilitation. Uh, You'll list the different components of vocational resource facilitation. And we'll go into that definition a little bit more as we go along. And then finally, you're going to comprehend some of the historical trends in rehabilitation and medical rehabilitation 
that provide the underlying reason for why we're doing what we're doing when we do this project. So um, with the next slide, my, my colleague here is going to tell you a little bit about resource facilitation, but I'll be back. So. Okay, uh, I think Trevor gave a good introduction. Um, uh, resource facilitation uh, was originally developed at the Mayo Clinic uh, a number of years ago, and it is essentially, as Trevor mentioned, it's an early intervention. That is, it's an intervention with individuals when they're in acute medical rehabilitation. It was originally developed in the, in the context of TBI, uh, by Malik and his colleagues, as I mentioned, at the Mayo Clinic. Um, uh, collectively, they had, uh, 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 they had uh, conducted several research studies over, uh, I'd say, about six or seven years um, on over 300 uh, folks with TBI using this approach. And the, the competitive employment rates uh, at one year follow-up with folks who were t with, had TBI were from 41 to 56 percent. Uh, these weren't controlled studies, but they were studies that used um, the traumatic brain injury model systems ben benchmarks to uh, to kind of, uh, to compare their outcomes to the model systems. Uh, which we also do, which we will get into a little later. Um, the, uh, I think the next, uh, I think it's uh, time for Adria to describe what the intervention is actually like, uh, how it's, how it's uh, implemented here at KIR. Actually, I'm going to jump jump in, so oh. Adrian will come after me. But uh, anyway, sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> no, no. So, what I'm going to describe is why why we wanted to implement this in spinal cord injury. So, uh, Malik had developed this program in individuals with brain injury, but uh, what we were seeing were similar gaps in individuals with uh, spinal cord injury. So, so the rest of this presentation is going to go over just what were some of these service gaps. So I'm going to describe some of these things um, and then delineate some of the project goals, what we were hoping to accomplish with it. And then Adria is going to review some of the intervention elements, some of the components that she was doing. John's going to come back and give us some of the, the project status, where we're at with the program. Adrian will then review some of the case studies, some of the success stories from our project, and then we'll finally wrap it up with some Q&A from you guys. So um, as many of you probably know, employment after spinal cord injury is abysmal. Um, I think the way we approach it in this country, I mean, it's understandable, but after a spinal cord injury, somebody's had their life completely turned upside down. And for a lot of people, they can't even fathom uh, going back to work. Uh, they were doing things up to a certain point, and suddenly their whole life's been turned upside down, and they don't know how they can go back to work. Uh, whether that was somebody who was doing a physically more demanding job or any job. 
Plus, this country isn't exactly good about encouraging people to go back to work. Uh, it's, I find it interesting that, uh, you know, in Social Security, if you're disabled, uh, so if you're, if you're working, you're no longer considered disabled. And so I, I joke that that's the cure for spinal cord injury. Um, because I'm substantially gainfully employed, I'm no longer considered disabled by Social Security. So we have this a much different mentality. And in many other countries, it's not a question of will somebody go back to work, but, but when will they go back to work? How can we help them go back to work? So currently, the employment rate after injury in the spinal cord injury model systems uh, in the United States is 12% at year one. Uh, this goes up to 28% by year 10, but it's still very low when you look at the able-bodied population. Uh, these are older stati statistics. So unfortunately, uh, rehabilitation stays are getting increasingly shorter. So there's less of an opportunity to approach an individual with spinal cord injury to talk about going back to work. They're just trying to come to terms with their injury. They're trying to learn basic transfer techniques, learning how to do a bowel uh, program, bladder management, all these things. They can't even fathom going back to work for a lot of them. So, so there, you really don't have that opportunity. Um, State VR, vocational rehabilitation agencies, are expand, expanding their client base. So they're now taking on uh, cases with people with developmental disabilities. And so, you know, the, the VR counselors are overwhelmed with the sheer number of cases. Um, and then there's limited follow-up post-discharge. So you really have kind of this recipe for even worsening unemployment in people with spinal cord injury. And this is where our program comes in. So um, what are the goals of the program that we were doing? So what we wanted to do was infuse within the team, the clinical team, and on the inpatient floor, a vocational resource facilitator. This was Adria. Um, this was followed by systematic and assertive outpatient services once they're on the outside. So you have them in the hospital, you can connect, you can engage them, but a lot of times what can happen after they've been discharged is you lose them. And with the vocational resource facilitator, they're following from the time of inpatient to outpatient service, so they're maintaining that contact. Um, what it also does is it integrates a, an employed peer mentor. So a person with spinal cord injury who is working, so that individual who has a new injury can talk to somebody and say, how did you go back to work? Peers are, are a very powerful tool for individuals with in, uh, injuries. Um, this peer mentoring program was provided through United Spinal Association, and this is an ongoing program with them. And our goal was by December of this year to have at least uh, 50 people with spinal cord injury enrolled into our program, and a targeted 30 who would be uh, substantially employed at some capacity. And I'll put, pass it to Adriana. Thanks. 
So an overview of the intervention. Um, each week, I attend the clinical team meetings, um, and they're comprised of physiatrists, PT, OT, ST, case manager, um, nursing, and the dietaries. Um, during this meeting, we're talking about functional status. We are identifying barriers to community reintegration and to independent living. We're discussing discharge planning, um, and we're also talking about what their what their goals are for outside of um, on, on the outpatient level, and because these the medical team typically has more face time with the patients, they're the ones who are typically intersecting and getting the the questions about employment or concerns about employment. So they're able to then during that meeting make a recommendation or referral for vocational services. Once I'm linked to these patients, I'm then reporting back to the team um, information about what their goals might be. But I'm also hearing and listening for critical information about their um, motor recovery, their sensory recovery, and thinking long-term what, what kind of services they might need in order to help them um, be able to compensate for that area. Once I'm working with them, I meet with patients outside of their therapy schedule, and I introduce um, the return to work concepts. And this is when the individual vocational counseling occurs. Um, I meet with patients and their families, and we're discussing what their employment goals are. Um, we're discussing if their goal is to go back, go back to their previous position, we're talking about their, their career at length um, through patient report. Um, sometimes patients have access to a job description. Um, I'm often doing my own research online and researching their company. Um, I have other databases. There's something called ONET, which is the Occupational Information um, Network, which essentially um, compiles national data based off of all types of occupations, and it comes up with a, a summary for each job. So um, if a job's complicated or a little bit difficult for me to understand, um, I print out that summary and sit with the patient, and together we go through and they identify exactly what, what um, aspects of that profile represents their job duties. And through these conversations, I'm able to introduce and identify different vocational services. Um, so I always like to ask, out of a show of hands, how many people are familiar with DVR? We've been talking about it today, um, but how many people are familiar with it? Okay, great. How many people have worked with patients who've asked them questions about returning to work? Am I able to go back to work? What resources are available to me? Okay. And how many people have been able to submit a referral for them to DVR? Nice. Okay. So drop in hands on that on that third question. Um, but essentially, um, that's what we're trying to do. We're we're creating a presence and a role for somebody to answer and address and, and follow up on all of those questions. But once a patient is telling me that they're interested in learning to become eligible for DVR services, I'm then in the position to pull together all of the necessary paperwork and documentation and submit a quick referral. The goal and the hope is always to have the DVR counselors come and meet with our patients on site prior to them being discharged from the hospital. Um, and what we're finding is that we are we're, we're establishing a sense of, of social glue and a social network of providers and services and planning so that this person is having hope that once they are discharged from the hospital that they are going to be able to return to pre-injury activities and, and one of them being employment. Once discharged, um, patients are then eligible for two years of follow-along services, and that's regardless of where they are discharged to in northern New Jersey. And the focus here is to have them not fall out of contact with the recommendations or the plans or the ideas that we have started to brainstorm at the inpatient level. Okay. 
Okay, I'm going to comment on our outcomes a little bit. Uh, this is a busy table, but I think you can see it. Um, we basically um, um, have, in terms of uh, all the folks with SCI um, who have been uh, in the program at any time over 29 months since the program began, we've served or um, uh, 77 folks. Out of that 77, 27 have returned to work, which is about a 35% uh, return to work rate. We then begin to break down that information. Uh, first, uh, the, the third column um, from the left is the non-traumatic SCI. And over the total length of the program, we uh, have had 19 folks where uh, 10 have returned to work and that's a 53% return to work rate. Uh, amongst the traumatic folks with traumatic SCI, over the term of the project thus far, we've had um, 50, uh, 58 folks, and 17 have uh, returned to work uh, during that period, and that's a 29% return to work rate. We then break down uh, in terms of return to work one year, um, post-discharge, and uh, amongst all the folks, there have been, uh, uh, um, there uh, were 18 who returned to work after one, one year, and so that's a 37% return to work rate. And amongst the non-traumatic um, non SCI, uh, one year post-discharge, um, seven out of 13 have uh, returned to work, which is a 54% return to work rate in, within one year post-discharge. The last column is our kind of our benchmark. And uh, because the uh, SCIMS, the Spinal Cord Injury Model Systems, database uh, has uh, return to work rates at one year post-discharge. And of the 36 folks who uh, we have served um, at one year post-discharge, 11 had returned to work uh, amongst the traumatic uh, folks with traumatic SCI at a 31% return to work rate. Now the question is how does this compare to our benchmarks? Um, the light blue uh, columns are our one-year traumatic, uh, traumatic SCI, uh, that the return to, rate, return to work rate amongst that, that cadre, and it's 31%. And we have three benchmarks. Um, we have our first benchmark, which is... Um, uh, all the way to the left, um, and that is those folks, 12% of the uh, folks with uh, traumatic spinal cord injury within SCIMS uh, have returned to work after one year, and that includes all the years that the data's been collected at all the centers. So that average stays pretty stable across time. Um, we also have a couple of other benchmarks. Oh, by the way, that's a, an improvement of 158% over that benchmark. In terms of our second benchmark, that is um, 
that's reflected uh, reflective of the um, the spinal cord injury model systems data from 2006 to 2011. That is just before our project began, and the return to re return to work rate during that period amongst all centers amongst all those years was an average of 16%, and that's an improvement of about 94% over, um, uh, over the benchmark. And finally, we have a benchmark of uh, the New Jersey spinal cord injury model systems, which again is from 2006 to 2011. Uh, that return to work rate is 21% versus 31% for the vocational resource facilitation. Uh, that's almost a 50% improvement on uh, return to work. Um, so you can pick, pick your benchmark. Um, I personally like the 150% <laughs> improvement. Uh, but the reason we wanted to look at other benchmarks is because um, first of all, uh, between 2006 and 2011, that was a period that we were in the Great Recession, but then coming out of it. And, uh, and also the local data is important because, um, you know, people in New Jersey are more work-oriented anyway, isn't that right? <laughs> okay, so we'll go on to the next uh, slide. I'll hand it over to Adria who will uh, discuss some of the case studies, which I think are very enlightening. So we've prepared three um, case examples for to share today because they demonstrate different um, scenarios of um, just the barriers and the obstacles that some of our patients overcome. But you can really see through the stories how the um, intervention from the inpatient level, but also through the outpatient level, um, through the follow-along services, was really helpful for our patients. So this individual, um, she's 29 years old, T11 incomplete para. Um, she was employed full time at the Department of um, U.S. Department of Agriculture. And why we wanted to share her story is because it demonstrates the importance of interdisciplinary collaboration, um, her employer involvement, and her employer commitment. But also, um, as we'll see further on, kind of like the safety net that I feel like we've been describing as the follow along services and how it's really beneficial for this population. So a background of her story, um, she was just completing field work in Florida, and she was driving home when she started to experience back pain followed by foot drop and then loss of movement in both of her legs. She had a spinal tumor that ruptured. Working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, her job is physical. She hikes, climbs, and kayaks different terrain in order to collect samples of plants and animals for research. <clears throat> her company donated... Um, paid time off through the, the leave donation program, which allowed her the time and um, eliminate some of the stress to really involve herself in the inpatient and outpatient therapies. During her therapy, she was introduced to the CAFO brace, and she was able to wear this brace and return to work on a part-time basis with modified duties when she started um, at first in a clerical position. Her employer was very supportive and allowed um, her to um, pre-screen and defer any projects that were field-based to her discretion so that she was able to determine her level of comfort and safety before she was taking on anything physical. 
So she was able to manage this um, at a full-time basis until the weather changed, and she was finding it difficult to navigate in the snow, rain, and cold temperatures wearing the the cathode brace because it didn't fit into her snow boot. So... um, her outpatient therapist was super helpful and very influential in this whole process because she wrote um, a letter of recommendation that we will touch upon later, but how that helped identify the need for, it was a a letter of, of medical necessity which helped her at the end retain her job. So her therapist also introduced to her the bionis the bionis uh, brace, and as you guys know what this is, um, it was helping to prevent any onset of foot drop. But this brace was worn at the upper calf level, so she was able to wear the, the proper footwear with using this brace. So this brace became crucial um, and very important for her in order to not only safely perform her job, but to retain her job. Um, This brace was $9,000 and not covered by her insurance, and she wasn't in the position to afford this through an out-of-pocket expense. So this individual returned to work. Um, She was not experiencing any difficulty until post-discharge, almost about a year later. And this is where the follow-along services through this program were helpful for her. So she was already um, connected with the resource facilitator, and this individual helped her become eligible for DVR services. What they found out is that DVR was not, um, Bionis was not an approved vendor for DVR. So DVR, how they work is they typically um, have agencies or vendors that they have contracts with, and that's how they um, they develop billing and payments and things like that. And Bionis was not one of them for DVR. So this individual, um, being quite the self-advocate, um, called Bionis and said, is there any reason why you aren't an approved vendor? What's the process to become a, an approved vendor? What can we do to help support that? So the DVR account, the uh, vocational resource facilitator here was calling DVR and uh, encouraging them to uh, consider an application that they knew that Bionis was going to submit and fulfill. They worked on this for six months, and finally, um, after... Their, their commitment and their persistence, um, DVR accepted Bionis as an approved vendor, and they ended up paying all, they paid all but $500 of the $9,000 brace. So this, the, the purchase of this brace also included um, the unit, a 14-month supply of pads, um, and a two-year warranty. When Bionis learned about her story, they waived the remaining $500 fee. So today, she's flourishing in her career. Um, She was actually recently promoted to a new position. However, medically, um, she experienced a minor setback due to a secondary medical complication associated with her injury, and she uh, had a very short stay here, an inpatient. Um, She's working an outpatient with her therapist, and she and I are um, talking about So her roles have shifted. She's not necessarily going back to the same type of work that she was doing when she was initially injured. Um, However, so the conversation's a little bit different, and we're unsure of what kind of equipment she might need to help her fulfill those duties. Um, So it's a really good example of how the follow-along services are there to um, be like a backup and support people whenever they run into any type of difficulty at work. Um, They're able to utilize the follow-along services and that intervention to help with that. Our next next case example, we like to report on um, because it demonstrates um, one of the things that Dr. Trevor spoke about, which is gaps in services. 
So this individual, um, he's 53 years old, C4 complete Tetra due to a motor vehicle crash. He was employed full-time at FedEx as a driver at the time of his injury, and he was confident that he was unable to return to his job um, due to the physical demands associated with the driving, but also to um, deliver packages and, and um, complete the walking elements of the job. He was linked to DVR at the inpatient level, and when he became an outpatient, um, he, the DVR recommended that he participate in a vocational evaluation. So one of the services that DVR provides is vocational guidance, and recommending him for a 10-day um, vocaval was a good idea because he wasn't sure what he was able to do. So the vocavals focus on um, identifying his aptitudes and his strengths, but also matching that with his interest in order to formulate a realistic vocational goal with consideration to the um, potential barriers or um, unforeseen limitations that somebody might be able to, to fulfill that job due to their disability. While he was there, um, the, the vocational evaluator um, was unable to accommodate his needs from a physical standpoint. So he was unable to complete some of the paper-based and computer-based assessments that were part of the vocational evaluation. Um, so she recommended to put testing on hold. And she thought, let's, let's recommend him for an assistive technology evaluation. This way, we can get some information about what's helpful for him in order to overcome these physical barriers. So the evaluation was completed, but what it ended up happening is that he wasn't able to utilize or benefit from any of those recommend recommendations because it wasn't linked to a vocational goal. It was only linked to a testing environment. So he was kind of back at square one, feeling frustrated, feeling like he wasted a bunch of time. Um, and this is when the vocational resource facilitator at this facility transferred out. So there were some gaps in his services. He decided that he was going to disengage from the um, remainder of, of the vocaval and just figure it out on his own. When his DVR counselor learned about this, she was viewing him as being non-compliant, he wasn't following through on recommendations, and he just wasn't ready for work. Um, so when I met with him, um, we really focused on what his, what his interests were, what his vocational goal was. And he said to me, when I come to Kessler for therapy, I pass two individuals who are wheelchair users, and it looks like they have a, um, a, a, a similar injury as I do, and I see them working in a clerical setting. If they can do it, I can do it, and I want that to be my goal. So I had to kind of have him buy back into the process of wanting to work with DVR and continue with um, the remainder of his testing. Um, so I coordinated a meeting with um, this patient, his DVR counselor, the vocational evaluator, and the individual who completed the vocational, um, excuse me, the assistive technology evaluation. And we, I advocated for the remainder of his testing to be tailored towards uh, um, tailored towards clerical and customer service-based assessments, but also for them to um, include accommodations for him during this process. So potentially having somebody sit with him and fill in the paper, the test, or what have it be, and he kind of dictate to them. So they needed to accommodate him from a testing standpoint in order to really see what his skills were. Um, he then went on to, to participate in a work trial experience at the same facility. And the work trial experience was great because it allowed him to trial work in three different customer service settings. Um, but there was an OT in this program, and the OT was contacting me because she wasn't sure how to um, implement different types of accommodations or assistive technology that he could use. So with the patient's permission, um, I 
facilitated a bridge of communication between his outpatient therapist here to talk with the OT in the in the work program. And essentially, the the therapist here was giving her education about spinal cord injury, but also um, his high level of injury and what that might, how that might manifest in his physical abilities to work um, at a desk setting. Um, she was also guiding her on what might be helpful for her to introduce from an assistive technology standpoint, um, because because this individual wasn't really sure how to deal with this type of, of, of uh, disability. It was kind of foreign for them. Um, so once he completed the program, um, we didn't stop with our momentum. He and I worked probably for hours on his resume, which um, entailed 25 years of work in physical manual labor. So we were reconstructing his resume. And you know, within all of his jobs, there are customer service and communication and attention to detail. And all those skills are there. We just had to revamp it. So we spent hours upon hours um, highlighting his skills and showing that he has recent work experience, but also the profile, the, the, the resume and the profile to back it. Um, we worked on performing online job searches and applying for jobs. And remember, he had limitations navigating a computer. So he and I, whatever he was telling me to do, I was clicking around. So I was, I was providing that support to help him access that resource. When he was contacted for an interview, our focus shifted to um, interviewing skills. We talked about um, disclosure, how to talk about a disability, how to request um, an accommodation but also his fears about being a wheelchair user and being somebody who's, this is his first time going on an interview as being a person with a disability. So we're talking about his fears and his concerns and coaching and talking through all these different scenarios and questions that they might ask so that he was building his confidence but also feeling prepared when, going, when, uh, when, when on the interview. So I'm happy to say that he was offered and accepted a position as a switchboard operator. Um, and the, the services don't stop there. It's not that, okay, you're employed, good luck, have a blast. It's now we're focusing on how can we make sure that you are able to access and perform your job duties. The assistive technology that he received back at, in, at the um, work program wasn't universal. So what was recommended in that report doesn't translate to what he was doing at this particular job. Um, so I, the two individuals who reported, who presented this afternoon, Kira and Rachel, um, I consult with them often at, at, on, at the inpatient level because I know they have access to a lot of different um, devices or technology. So I asked to borrow a Kensington trackball mouse, which I let him borrow, and he was able to bring it with him to work and try it out, and it was successful. So he ordered it on Amazon, had it by Monday, and he was able to, on his own, overcome that barrier. Um, he reached out to his outpatient occupational therapist, and she helped him to install some um, accessibility features on the computer at his job, um, sticky keys, so he's able to log in and do other computer shortcuts. And I'm working with him right now on kind of just restructuring and moving things around in his workstation so he can access it. Um, so it's a really great example of gaps in services, and I'm not sure where he might have been if he really decided to do this on his own. There's so many layers and so many barriers, and and I think the, my favorite part about this program is the follow-along services. I think it makes so much sense for this population, um, and this is a really good example of that. Okay, time for one more, or should I? Okay, one more. Our last individual um, 
74% of people with spinal cord injury have a tra traumatic brain injury. So we wanted to use this case example um, because this individual here um, had dual diagnosis, diagnosis of TBI and complete um, para due to a motor vehicle crash. On the day he purchased his motorcycle was the day he sustained his injury. He was an, an inactive Marine at the time. Um, while he was an inpatient, he was linked to DVR. Um, and on, when he became outpatient, he was working in both of our programs. He was in our outpatient gym for spinal cord therapy, but also in our outpatient cognitive rehab program. I was working in CRP at the time, and I was working with this individual. So I was able to um, give information and educate the resource facilitator who was working in this position. Um, I was able to educate her on what the cognitive barriers were to work and what the, the and give her an example of the compens compensatory strategies that he was using and that were successful for him so that she could give that information to a job coach. So a job coach is a service funded through DVR to help somebody um, learn a job, be successful at the job, and then they slowly kind of back off until the person's completely integrated. Um, we were networking with his family who helped to identify a job placement for him. Um, he is working as a dispatcher at the local police um, station. And um, DVR was crucial in, in this because they were helping to provide home modifications, vehicle modifications so that he's driving himself to work, but also supported employment um, through a job coach. And supported employment uh, job coaches and support employment and job coaches are fantastic. However, they lack a lot of information and education about these types of disabilities, brain injury and spinal cord injury. So to make sure that the individual was getting the accurate information so that they can implement it to his specific work environment was really important. Um, so he's still there. He's still working at his job. His duties have shifted a little bit. He and I were talking about how to um, self-advocate and ask for more work and maybe if there's um, take on more hours, try to increase his role a little bit. But also he was really in need for some mental health services. So um, we were trying to look through the VA, which we ultimately ended up being able to secure him, him to have those services through there, but also just researching through his um, insurance carrier and insurance network. Um, so it's a good example of family involvement. It's a good example of how somebody might um, utilize different services um, for their dual diagnosis, but also the role of the resource facilitator to build relationships and be able to get the right information from all the different service providers so that this person can be independent and successful at work. To listen to more conference podcasts, information about Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation or Kessler Foundation, check out the links within the description of this podcast. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. 